Stibbs and Charleston. They now can try their slipper and see if it fits at the big ball. East Tennessee State Buccaneers, they're dancing, boys. Hunter Mosquera, Perea lays it up. 1.4. Perea hits it. The pass is caught. Ready for the game winner. Wide left. Bucks win. Nothing spotting for three. The place is going to erupt. Oh, Deuce Bellow. He's going to make Sports Center with an incredible. Jarvis Jones, the game winner, got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another. They got game him. Winner. If he catches it, it's over. Ball game. Touchdown, Jawan Stinson. 25 yards. JJ German for the win. He got it. JJ German and the Bucks have shocked the Bulldogs. And the sidekick. Who in the blue hell are you? You're handsome. You have the perfect amount of scruff. And you still have no talent. It's Sandos and the sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. said one time in an interview for Chattanooga and I think my first 97 I was doing scoreboard for the network back then so so back in 97 I can tell you uh, the hate of Chattanooga was real it's been real it's always real it started actually in the 80s before they really got rock and rolling I don't know where you started with this and I came out late on my show I enjoyed that that's uh, had it going Classic is it. yeah it is it is it is uh, it got held up some paperwork something like that um before you get into it, mm-hmm. rest of the show, SoCon preview, Buck basketball, buzzer beer, blowout, and in fact, we may even be hearing a call that you hear every day on Santa's and the Sidekicks, so just some foreshadowing there, then bold predictions on the rivalry that you just talked about a little bit. Coach Rusty Wright, who I talked to him earlier this week, said he doesn't think it's so much of a rivalry right now because of the infrequent nature of how often that it is played, and you being the man that often pumps up this rivalry as still the most prevalent for ETSU thoughts very interesting to me on that point the fans it is to the coaches and players i think that takes time i i think walking down i've told the story many times walking down the street getting ready getting ready for either robert harper's wedding in chattanooga or kevin brown's i don't remember specifically which one they were back-to-back years wearing a tissue shirt and an old guy stopped me and said hey bucks huh like yeah Good to have you back in the league. And it was going to be the next year. And I was like, yeah, it'd be great. And then he paused for a second and said, 
be good to kick your butt again. And he just walked off. He's 77 years old. I'm like, great. That's what we need. Like, I loved it. I mean, I'm all in on that. And for fans, it's that way. For players, I remember even talking to Gene Henley, having him on, who writes for the um, free press down there. And he was like, yeah, it's just really not. I mean, you know, you played a couple times and you haven't won. Well, then ETSU won. And then the next year, Rusty Wright came as new head coach and called it It was a fist fight, and one team didn't know they were in. So it's a little a little, a little, little shocking, I think, that he's gone, eh, but they didn't play last year. They've only played a few times. I get that it takes a while. It took a while in basketball. Like basketball, the players didn't really know, and then all of a sudden you start playing meaningful games. And that's the key. You play meaningful games. It certainly helps. I would say the number of personal fouls in sports in 2019, Rusty Wright should have known he was in one. He's the one that called it. Anyways, I, I do get his mindset um, because he just not enough games played between the two, and Chattanooga and football has had more meaningful games recently than that. Basketball, I think, is full-fledged, not even close. And football, if ETSU goes down there and wins, I think it's another step closer. Honestly, A.J. Caldwell, just a heck of a shot by a heck of a guy. So, I, I, I mean, I, there, there's a part of me that understands what he's saying. The one thing I will say, it's different in football and basketball, and I've always said this. Basketball is very few people locally from Johnson City that are both on Johnson City and both on Chattanooga. All right? There's one or the other, but never really both in basketball. It's just numbers and scholarship-wise and a bunch of other reasoning. But there's always guys in football that are on both, from Chattanooga that go to Chattanooga and go to ETSU, Trust these kids that go to Chattanooga and go to ETSU. So there's always right. some yeah, – that's right. There's yeah. inherent stuff there, and there's inherent trash talk that goes behind the scenes that you don't know about that eventually comes out to play. But the way Chattanooga celebrated and ran and got the rail and rode around the field in 2019, it meant something to them there. Now, maybe this is tampering the situation because last year, or 2019, I think he – got everybody fired up for a fist fight, and then they had like four or five straight unsportsmanlike penalties in which you had to calm people down. So maybe he's got a different approach. Um, I think they know this is a big game. I think ETSU knows this is a big game. I think if ETSU goes down there and wins, then it just enhances what the rivalry is going to be and will keep going. It'll, it'll happen fast. But I think they really have not played a meaningful game. I think 2018 was meaningful, but it was like mid-year. And nobody really knew in 2018 the was going to go on the run. You know, it was right in the middle of that. It was 17-14, 54-yard screen pass. I think first score of the game to Quay Holmes. It kind of got the scoring going. But that was early in the year. Not a lot riding on the line. 2019, the wasn't playing for much on that Thursday night game. Chattanooga was. And in 2020, would have had a good situation. Because 2017, they didn't play for nothing. It was the end of the year. Neither team was going anywhere. So, um, I think... The 2018 was a wake-up call that, hey, ETSU, it means a lot to them. I think Coach Wright took over in 2019 and said, hey, I watched the film. Like, that was that was one team emotionally in it and one team not. So he got his team in it. Then they had the personal fouls. They snuck out a win. And I think my guess is he's taken a slightly different approach with his team because he's got seven defenders that were on that 2019 team that saw that. And I think that's going to be – sort of the key. And for ETSU, some of their players are already miffed that they didn't get to play the game last year. And so I'm kind of curious how quickly the emotions get going. That's the only thing that can derail. I'm all for, I've said this basketball said that, I'm all for 
the emotions that mean something, there is a point where it is uncalled for and ridiculous. And I thought Coach Wright, and I gave him a lot of credit on the broadcast, called a timeout, and you could see him pointing to the scoreboard in a tie game and tell his team, basically, you're killing us. Like, I know you want to run over there and dance in front of their sideline, but how many 15-yard penalties are you going to hamper yourself when this team hasn't done a lot in the second half driving the football on their own without penalties? On this year's matchup, and I want to talk about Chad first, because it seems to me, looking around, that there's a few people that are out on the mock since they've lost three of their first five. But I'm going to make the contention that their non-conference was perhaps the toughest in the league. They didn't play a non-D1, ETSU Mercer, the Citadel did. They played a Power 5 school, only Western, ETSU, Mercer, and Furman also did that. Plus, they had a ranked FCS team on their pre-league schedule, Wofford and Furman, the only others to have done that. So in terms of teams that didn't schedule essentially an auto win against a non-D1, played a Power 5 school, and had a ranked FCS team in the non-conference as well, Furman and Chattanooga are it. And there's an argument that you can make for Furman having the better schedule, especially considering North Carolina State is ranked right now. But, Chad, if they're not number one, they're 1A behind Furman. Throw the Citadel in there, too, I think, simply because they played Coastal Carolina, and obviously Chanticleers are having a great year, ranked number 15 in FBS right now. And they have played two ranked FCS teams to start their league schedule in BMI and ETSU. So if you look totality, they may have the toughest schedule across all the league. If you look non-conference, I think it's Furman and Chattanooga, and I think that Chattanooga is right there, if not number one. All that to be said, my opinion of them has not diminished. They've got the great one-two in the backfield. We know that. William Ford and Tyrell Price. Coach Wright told me in that same conversation I had with him earlier this week, he thinks the quarterback play is getting better with Cole Copeland. And for the first time this year, you can see last week, didn't throw an interception in a game. Now only 18-35 is Copeland, like 52% or whatever in completion percentage. So still not great, but getting better, not making as many mistakes that hurt the team. They keep their quarterback clean. Top 10 in the nation and fewest sacks allowed. Their defense is top 15 in the nation in both sacks and interceptions. So, Jay Sandoz, who does that sound like? Sounds a lot like ETSU, doesn't it? Great one-two backfield. Quarterback play much improved. The Bucks had, say, a pretty sizable step ahead there. ETSU tops in the league in passing efficiency. Chattanooga's last, but a similar storyline. They keep their quarterback clean to the Bucks. Top 10 in the nation, fewest sacks allowed, just like Chattanooga. Bucks top 40 in terms of defense on both sacks and interceptions. So maybe a little bit of Chattanooga having the upper hand there, but just a touch. Overall, the makeup of these two teams, though, pretty similar. Going into the year, the talk was the two best running, traditional running game and traditional defense was going to be ETSU and Chat. Lived up to it. 100%. The one-two combination, again, we can start an argument over tandem running backs, but I, I think you start there. I think Mercer's trying to make an argument to have some of their guys thrown in the mix for tandem running backs. I think Devin Wynn is great. Abrams just hasn't been given the carries, and I have no idea what Wofford's doing and, and some other things. And Jalen Adams is just taking carries away from the running backs. That's a situation. Corey Brady gets all the carries. I mean, we've gone down the list of this. Um, I think that was it. I think the big question is the quarterback play for both and, and receiver, maybe kind of in tandem, because the offensive line was the strength of Chattanooga coming in. And watching the Austin P game, I was shocked that they got sort of manhandled. Didn't they go out and beat North Alabama? Didn't they go to Kentucky? Now, watch the game. They whipped them up front on offense and defense. Now, Kentucky got things going late. There was the 95-yard interception return for a touchdown. 
But right now, Chattanooga's the only team that played the 11th-ranked team in the country the tightest game. We played them to a 28-23 game. Florida lost by seven. South Carolina lost by six. They blitzed Monroe. They blitzed LSU. I don't know what old Coach O's going to do. But I guess he's going to get more chicken on the stick at the Exxon, but that'll be it. And then Missouri lost by seven. So the best game that Kentucky played, the tightest game they played against was Chattanooga. They had the 95-yard interception return for a touchdown. Chattanooga came right back down the field, scored, onside kick, was bobbled around battle. There was a who got it, he got it, they got it, and it ended up being Kentucky. They took some knees to end it. But Chattanooga was virtually one pass play away. And it was one that I think Cole Copeland, if he could do it over again, obviously would have not kind of tossed it up. And to be honest with you, I thought when he intercepted it, him going 95 yards was not in – the realm of possibility when that play started. But give Kentucky credit, what they've been able to do. But Chattanooga, if you look at ran for almost 200 yards. I mean, just, uh, I thought, held Kentucky pretty much in check. Kentucky's fourth quarter numbers were pretty good. But other than that, they struggled to really get things going. It was very similar to ETSU and Vanderbilt, except Kentucky has more talent than Vanderbilt. That was really the only difference. Um, in the game, and I thought that watching the game. Now I was not going to sit here and tell you I thought they would rattle off wins at you know Florida at home and LSU by 21 or whatever. But to me, Chattanooga. I mean, Rusty, right? The best stat I can give you is 12 of the 14 SoCon games they have 200 or more yards rushing. When Rusty Wright is the head coach, and I think that is an impressive number. They had 242 last week against VMI, and I think. Running the defense is what they want to do. They want more play out of the quarterback play. They probably need better quarterback play. And I agree with sort of how you how we got to this point of the conversation of the shocker is really the quarterbacks and where they've come. Now, Cole Copeland has been there longer than Tyler Roddell, got unseated for Nick uh, Torino as, as he was able to take over the Mississippi State transfer for a couple of seasons. Tiano, sorry. And then, Grand Torino, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, – and then they try to get Drayton Arnold started, try to get Drayton Arnold started. They've been trying to make him the starter. He just hasn't had the numbers or the command of the offense or whatever it is. So Cole Copeland is back over. I think the difference is still going to be the line offensively. Can both teams run the football? The other flip side of that, and you've mentioned it, but the defense – but the sacks, both teams lead the league in sacks or seconds. I think 15, right? Both teams have 15 sacks, so they lead the league in sacks. Who's going to keep their quarterback upright or which quarterback isn't going uh, to not make the mistake, right? Who is not going in the fear of pressure, just lob one up there and let the DBs come intercept it? Because I know we talk about ETSU's defensive backfield and how scary they are, but Chattanooga's second in the nation in interceptions with 10. They're averaging two a game. So certainly – that's a concern for ETSU if you toss it up there. They got some guys that can go ball hawk at seven players that were in the two deep that saw significant time against ETSU in 2019 is there in this matchup well. So they are very good defensively, specifically watching their front three or sometimes they'll bring the outside linebacker. They only rush three or four because they can get to the quarterback. ETSU's gotten a lot of it because they've been able to do some blitzes and get home. So it's a little bit different philosophy. Obviously, if Coach Taylor could get home with three or four, he would do it all day long and have more guys in protection. So, to me, there's a slight advantage Chattanooga in this game because they have the capability right now. Now, I don't think they've gone up against a good line as ETSU, 
Uh, I mean, maybe you could argue, well, Kentucky's got one left the country. Well, they didn't show it that day. Uh, I'm not saying that Kentucky's line maybe isn't better than ETSU's, but on that day, they certainly were not a good line. They were getting whipped all over the place. So it will be curious to see if ETSU can sort of hold their own there. ETSU was able to score over 30 points again. They're 12-1 and when they score 30 points. Three games against Chattanooga, 2017, 18, 19, just 33 points. So points will be at a premium. ETSU's number one scoring defense. Chattanooga's at third, but they're only like four points behind them, giving up one's 18, one's 22. So they're right there in almost all the numbers, and it points to yet another, I think, just a knockdown drag out that I think has the potential to be higher scoring than the 13.3 to 11.1 or whatever they're averaging in the three games. I think it'll be more than that. But I don't feel like this is going to be a 38-34 shootout like VMI. I could be totally shocked because I did not see VMI making the run they did in the second half for points. But in the same token, they threw a lot of jump balls to Michael Jackson, and we know one guy likes jump balls, especially in that stadium, is Will Huzzy, as he had the number one sports center play back in 2019. But I, I don't I don't know that the ETSU doesn't really have an offense where they do some of the things VMI does. So I, I think this will be a little bit more of a grinded out, almost an old school NFL type feel to the game where guys are going to spend a lot of time getting the running game established, especially against the lines, because I think if and ETSU, I'm not saying won't go play action first down, some things to try to get favorable throws for Tyler Rydell. I just think if ETSU is stuck in second and third and ten a lot, which they've been great at not doing this year, but if they're stuck in that a lot, it, it makes me a little worrisome because I am a believer in the Chattanooga defensive line. Devon Maxwell has five sacks to lead the team defensive lineman. Ben Bruton listed as a defensive lineman, second on the team in sacks, fourth on the team in sacks. Quay Wiggles listed as a defensive lineman. So, to your point, the guys that are getting to the quarterback, three of the top four linemen, and then why would you send too many others in support? Now, Ty Bogue has, I believe, two sacks. He's also been in the backfield a lot, five tackles for a loss. He's a linebacker, and they've got linebackers in support that can come into the backfield and take down your quarterback as well, make you lose yards. So they're there, too. That front seven is very dangerous. But I, I agree, looking at what they've done with Maxwell, Bruton, Wiggles, why hurt yourself in pass defense when you can just go with three or four and then have seven guys in the secondary, specifically against an ETSU offense that I think has set itself aside, or apart, excuse me, from Chattanooga in that one way, and that is passing the ball. I think that ETSU's offense is more balanced. I think it is more explosive. I think it can hurt you in more ways. And we saw that against the Citadel when you put up 48 points against a team that, according to Randy Sanders, out-physicaled you last year. Well, in every single way, you were better than the Citadel last week when it came to physicality, when it came to who exerted whose impact and authority on the other. It was ETSU, and you're going to have a defense that is much better the Citadel defense that you have to contend with this week. I think where Chattanooga is going to be able to have the advantage is, yes, on the defensive side of the ball, because I'm not sure, and if you've listened to the show for the first six weeks of it in this fourth season that we're doing, or third season, or whatever it is, you know that I have gassed up this ETSU defense, and you know that I've been a big believer in it, and it's so talented. The secondary has got, you know, Price, Huzzy, Robinson, Delance, and the linebacking court, and 
the front three now are, are going to be missing some guys. Austin Lewis is out for a significant period of time. Blake Bockrath is going to, it sounds like, miss the season. So there isn't quite the depth maybe at those two units that there was. But they've also gotten by pretty well without having their full complement of linemen or linebackers so far this season. So I don't think those two absences specifically are going to hurt a whole lot considering what the Bucks have already been able to do. That being said, the one thing that I do worry about as someone obviously pulling for ETSU in this game is the defense. And I didn't think I'd say that after they gave up eight points per game in the non-conference, but they haven't given up less than 21 in league play, and the schedule hasn't exactly been full of phenomenal offenses, especially in October. Now, we can argue all day, and you and me are on the same page about this, so we don't need to, but someone looking at the SOCON, looking at Samford, we can argue all day about, okay, is it an offense that's just electric and can't be stopped, and is that something that is going to lead them special places, or does it really just not matter? And it appears to me that it really does not matter. They will do everything they possibly can to put up points, and it doesn't matter what else, what else happens in those games for them. So, to me, you kind of even throw that game out just a bit. Not completely. I'm not saying throw out the 48 points altogether. But considering that they are all in on offense, and it's 99% let's figure out that side of the ball, and 1% let's worry about defense, that is an outlier to me. Now, it still wasn't a great defensive performance. Billy Taylor will tell you it. The players told you it. There were tons of mistakes. We were tired. We were gassed. We weren't prepared because it's hard to prepare for how fast they were going. They made adjustments. We didn't. It wasn't a great performance. But I don't think that it was a give-up-48-type bad performance. Again, to play doubles advocate to that point, having given up less than 21, and the Citadel and Wofford, to me, outside of Western Carolina, well, firstly, Western Carolina's a better offense than either of them, but those are two of the bottom three teams in the league along with Western Carolina this year. So I think that this defense is one that can return to its non-conference form. I don't know if I'm convinced that it will be this game, and that's worrisome. It is. There's, there's a lot of lot of things to overcome, and I try to keep coming up with, you know, sort of the theme and can you do this, and obviously Tissue since I've been back, Tissue has not won in Finley Stadium, haven't won Chattanooga since, you know, 94 from the, or I'm sorry, 2000 um, more than a four point win since 94, sorry so I, I think that scoring is going to be big I think if it gets a shootout I will be shocked if it is a shootout, that means the defense's have disappointed. It's always a twofold. Obviously, the offense made plays, but the defense has had to do something I think wrong for both teams to get in the 30s. Um, I I don't see this game playing out. Um, obviously, it can play out that way, but I don't see one team just whipping the other team kind of up and down the field. And you get now if you get bad kicking game, you get one team has three turnovers, the other one doesn't. Yes, now you can get in a situation where sure but I think that would qualify as probably whipping a team if you gave up, you know, uh, three turnovers and you're back to average punting 22 yards or you missed three field goals again uh, for Chattanooga, which has always been a problem for the Mocs. They missed two last week, which was funny because they hit one with one second to go to send it to overtime and then missed virtually the same distance. I was kicking to a different end zone, but virtually the same distance um, and didn't get it to go in. So – 
it's something that they've had a problem with as far as kicking game, field goals. It's not necessarily punting. They've always been decent at punting. They've always had a good return game. It just, for whatever reason, they have struggled in the field goal game. ETSU, as of late, we love Tyler Keltner. I think certainly he's missed a couple field goals the last couple games, but if you still look at what he's doing and producing, um, still some solid numbers. He's still, you know, Reliable. I don't think anybody cringes when he runs out there. As some teams have kickers that you do cringe. Punting last week was huge for ETSU. If you get, I, I don't know that you can get the fifty whatever three yard average or whatever it was for Taylor last week. Seventy six yarders coming your way. Yeah, yeah, but if you can just get a couple of forty fivers and up in the air and you know don't get a return. I I think this game. I'm I'm super excited. I thought this game was going to be maybe for the de facto championship early in the season, uh, and at least an eliminator game. And it still could be an eliminator game because if Chattanooga drops it, they've got two losses. You're looking at Mercer still with none. You know, you're looking at Furman with just one. They're hanging around there. There's a VMI's got one, and VMI's at Mercer. So we'll talk about that a little bit later. But there's certainly some things there. If ETSU were to drop the game, now you've just made the league where we thought it would be a little more interesting. Everything's kind of come back together. A lot of teams that maybe thought with two losses they were out or back in. You know, it's one of those situations. Because the more you can have, Z, you know, no loss and one loss teams and stick up there. Because if ETSU and Mercer both win again, you're talking about a couple, you know, teams that are undefeated. And then obviously VMI would have a second loss. Then Chad New would have a second two loss. Two at that point and to then, You know, I guess Furman got one. I mean, you could see what did, – did they turn a corner with Jace White? We'll talk about that later. But did they turn a corner with Jace White? I don't know. We'll see. Well, Jace uh, Wilson, I'm not sure. Yeah. Turned a corner with. Jace White, I have no idea who that is. But Jace Wilson, I'm not sure they yeah. turned a corner with either. But I, the people arguing for Furman, again, we can talk about this later. I, I'm sorry. Like, if you've got two 4-0 teams and Furman has laid an egg against one of those teams at home, that to me is a, a team that's going to contend for a championship. Now – Chattanooga, if this is the type of game that you believe it will be, may be in trouble simply because of special teams. And we've talked about the kicking game, but their bottom half in both punt and kick return average and kickoff coverage too. So if you think this is going to be the lowest scoring points at a premium game of field position, that could be big. Third downs I also think are going to be key. Chattanooga is second to last in the league in third down conversions, which is strange. That, to me, with their offense tells me that they are winding up in a lot of third and seven or worse. Because if you've got, you know, your third and three, third and four, third and fives, obviously your conversion percentage is going to be higher. But with the running backs that they have, to me, on those situations, they're handing it off. And they're letting Olympia Ford and Tyrell Price do their thing. ETSU, of course, second and third down defense. So that is a major mismatch for Chattanooga. If Chattanooga cannot stay on the field this game, that is going to be uh, extremely important because these are also the top two teams in the league in terms of time of possession. So I think whoever is better situationally, and this would be a great answer that Randy Sanders would absolutely love because he'd probably give the exact same one, but situationally, whoever is better third downs, fourth downs, red zone, uh, I think that's who's going to win this game. I'm going to tell you in both predictions what kind of game that I think it's going to be, so you'll have to wait for that. Actually, you don't even have to wait. You can just click ahead. It's not like a regular radio show. Just click right through. But I'll tell you that later. In terms of the game that you think it's going to be, I think special teams and situationally are going to play a big factor. And to your point about how the 
and Citadel. And that's a pair of one-loss teams. You've got uh, ETSU and Chattanooga. you got VMI and Mercer. If VMI wins and Chattanooga wins, you're going to have five one-loss teams right about the halfway point of Southern Conference play, even for some teams a little bit past the halfway point of Southern Conference play. Then it is a no-holds-barred free-for-all and going to be so much fun, especially considering for us, VMI is here November 6th, and Mercer is here November 20th. That is going to be loads of fun. I think that Randy Sanders, and as he said in his Monday press conference, his wife and daughter would probably like things to not be so tense, so stressful. They enjoyed the fact that the Bucks won by more than one score. I don't think that they would like a five-way tie at one loss, a virtual tie at least in the loss column, five-way uh, tie in the loss column about halfway through the year because then it comes down to a matter of you know minutes couple of plays here and there between league championship and for some teams, I don't think it'll be ETSU because I think they're essentially a playoff lock if they win this game this week or even two more games outside of this one at some point. For other teams, it may mean the difference between making the playoffs or not. See if I oversimplify this. Run game, number one key for both defenses, I think, to try to slow down the duos. If they don't do that, that team advantage. If the team does slow down the run game, now you're talking second, third, and long against some of the better pass defensive, pass rushing teams in not just the SOCON, but all of FCS. It's going to be a long day if you're throwing a third and long. So I think the running game is important. I think the pass game is there. It's almost like, to me, which team can get the run game going, will have shorter third downs, which will convert more and not put their team in third and long. Whoever has more, I don't know how you to look at it, whoever has shorter third-down opportunities or whoever's in third-long loses. But I feel like that's going to be a situation because I don't think a team can sit back and try to convert third and nine, third and 12 all day long. Can you get one or two? Sure. But if you're facing six to eight third-longs, I think it's going to be a long day for whichever team does that. And then turnovers. I think who can stay out of third-long turnovers, that would be – my biggest couple takeaways, probably oversimplifying again, but if we're just trying to narrow it down to just a few keys, that would be what I would point to. I asked Rusty right about Robert Riddle. I knew you did. He can I'm not going to tell you what he said. I'm not going to. you got to wait till Saturday. No, I, I will spoil it. We're not going to see Robert Riddle this week. You're not going to start. <laughs> Robert Riddle's not starting. He did not break any or, or, game or, or. Could be a smokescreen, Josh Conklin. Is he the poker man of all time? Could be a smokescreen, Josh Conklin. All right, let's break down the rest of this other conference. What do you think of that? Uh, okay. All right, we'll do that right after this. Santa Sidekick. Go the Buccaneers. Watch that work. And they never heard from him again. (gasps) Now that's scary, but listen to this one. It was a dark and dreary night. The man pulled into the convenience store parking lot. The lights flickered as he crept toward the counter and saw the new Halloween jumbo box, but he left without buying one, missing his chance at $75,000. That's terrifying. I know, right? Scare up some fun this season with a new Halloween jumbo box, only from the Tennessee Lottery. Game-changing fun. Please play responsibly. Breakdown. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, Sandos and the sidekick. We have ignition. Strap it on, here we go. In your face, all over the place. In your face, all over the place. Southern Conference football, it's a big weekend. I think it's safe to say 
And the biggest matchup for the week is one we just talked about, Bucks Knox. That's just my opinion. Of course, we would say that on this show. But there may be someone making and Lexington to disagree. It's the upstart Mercer Bears traveling to take on a team that just down one Southern Conference Championship hopeful last week in Chattanooga. And now we'll try to do the same against the Mercer Bears. I'd say contrasting yet evolving styles between these two teams and a bit of a chess match Saturday, again, if you ask me. It's a Mercer team that I think it's clear does a better job running the ball than throwing it. So if VMI has success throwing it, which historically they want to do more of, and get out to a big lead, they could put an end to this one quickly. But VMI is also showing the propensity, or lately, especially this year, to run the ball more with Corey Britty and be more balanced. So could they instead opt to aim for a 46-run to 42-pass type split like they had last week against Chattanooga, who I think, and we talked about this in segment one a little bit, I think resemble the Mercer offense a decent amount. 35 passes and 35 rushes last week for the Mox. I think Mercer would like to be even more skewed if it's 70 plays, maybe 45 rushes to 25 passes. They've been about two run to every one pass play so far this year. All that said, I think VMI is playing into the Bears' hands if they go more balanced. Now, it worked for them last week, if only narrowly so, with that overtime went over the Mox. I think they should throw it more. They had a great amount of success last week in the air, 300-plus and three scores for Seth Morgan, who's clearly back to 100% after that head injury earlier this season. Plus, Mercer is the number two run defense in the league. Stay away from the run. Use it more sparingly than you did last week. That, to me, spells success for the key debts to end Mercer's string of seven SoCon wins in their last eight tries. Well, Michael Jackson certainly came to play uh, in the last game uh, for VMI. You add him to Jacob Harris, and he got a one-two punch in the receiving game. And then I think you, you – I mean, you have to sprinkle in Britty some. No doubt. And I think if Mercer runs – God, they run that weird 3-3-5 three, three, joker – wild come at you from different just the smoke and mirrors they do on offense they do on defense and so I I think the run will be important but it will need to be picked in certain spots because I think Mercer's going to blitz a lot and I think because they do not have the horses like Chattanooga just to get three and four and get home but they've certainly seen the tape that if you can put a little pressure on Seth Morgan he will put the ball up for some interceptions and double digit interceptions for uh, BMI on the season, so they can give it up. They, they can certainly turn it over. I think that would be important for Mercer if they can get turnovers. I think the impressive part for Mercer is that they're 50% on third downs for the season, and so they're able to keep the chains moving. They have It's a weird offense because they're almost like the triple option that isn't the triple option. You know, they don't really run three backs where they're doing you know a fullback quarterback pitch type deal. They've just got a lot of three and four back things going on with motion, misdirection, some other things, and so it's led to some big plays. I mean, I know Fred. we talk about Fred Davis and all the running yards he's got, but they're hitting some long touchdown runs. I know we talked about ETSU and their long plays and long touchdowns, but the big play capability of Mercer starting to shine a little bit. Where Mercer struggles, throwing the football still. You know, they want to run the ball, as you said, two to one, uh, maybe more than that if, if, if they could to be successful. But if Mercer can get third and short, VMI is not a very good tackling team at this point. I think Mercer is going to be able to keep the ball. I think it's going to be tough for VMI to win the contest because I just don't see them making enough tackles. Now, the one thing that could flip that over is if VMI scores enough, and that's what happened last week. 
they couldn't make tackles really against Chattanooga, but they were able to, to make big plays down the field and score. And, you know, to do that, they got to keep you a little honest running. But in the first half, Corey, Corey Brady had a lot of yards, but not a lot of points. He had not a lot of yards in the second half. The pass game come around, they scored a lot of points. So it probably proves, I think, Mike's point that VMI needs to probably stick to the strength and air it out a little bit. But I think if VMI is going to win this one, they're probably going to have to put a lot of points on the board. I don't think VMI right now is built to win a 21-17 game. A couple of things to watch. Mercer has allowed eight conversions on ten fourth down attempts this year, by far the worst in the league. In the kick game, Mercer has the worst field goal percentage in the league and are averaging just 29 yards per punt. Also by far the lowest in the league. All these stats makes it feel like it would be a special set of circumstances for Mercer to win. But you mentioned it, the big equalizer, VMI, is allowing 283 yards per game on the ground. Could Mercer just pound it the entire day, control the game, keep it out of VMI's hands? It seems like that would play right into Mercer's hands. The other 130 kickoff outside of ETSU Chattanooga, Sanford at Wofford. And quite frankly, I don't have any idea what to expect out of this game at all. It's a Sanford team that was off last week and had a chance to retool some things defensively. Have they? Probably not. I personally wouldn't count on it. I'm not sure that they really have things going on defensively that are fixable. They're essentially bottom three in every defensive category there is except interceptions. They do have eight of those this year with one of the two touchdowns the league has on interception return, the other being Chattanooga. How the Bucks don't have at least two is beyond me. But the good news for Wofford fans here, the one thing that Sanford seems to be good at defensively, Wofford doesn't do all that often, more than they used to, yes, but not all that often. 157 rushes to 98 passes this year for the Terriers, so there's not going to be a lot of chances, I don't think, to go up and get an interception. Now, if Peyton Derrick kind of gets wild and out of control and makes some throws that are 50-50 balls, then those chances are there, and Sanford has a great chance. But if that does not happen and he's smart with the football, I think that will help Wofford a lot, not to state the obvious in this situation. Michael Mason did not return up front for the Terriers last week on the defensive line. They are hoping to have him back this week. Safety Miles Richardson has missed the last two weeks as well. They'd like to have him return with everything that they're missing elsewhere. Big question for me in this one, who will control the ball and win the time of possession battle? Not a question we ever thought we'd have to answer. We're talking about Sanford versus Wofford. In the past, this would have been a 35- or 40-minute Wofford game, but this year they're bottom two in the league in time of possession, contrastingly TTSU and Chattanooga, who are top two. And I wonder, with only 89 plays run offensively combined the last two weeks for Wofford, are the Terriers going to really make strides on the offensive side of the ball with so few game reps? And that may sound ridiculous because, what do you mean, Mike? They practice all the time, and you've got so many reps that you can go through during the week. It's different in a game. It's different when you don't know the other guy on the side of the ball you're going against. It's different when you have to think about scheme and adjusting and all those different things. Like practices are one thing, games are another. I think regardless of how many plays that Wofford gets to run, a higher percentage of them need to go to Urban Mulligan. He's their best offensive player. Ten carries last week, not enough. I'm just going to go with this. Um, The style for Sanford has been a horrific matchup for Wofford, no matter who the head coach has been. Five straight for the Bulldogs. I'm going to go Bulldogs for nothing else. It seems like the style of play, even when Wofford was rocking and rolling with all the defensive guys and Mike Ayers and going to playoffs and winning championship after championship, they can't beat Sanford. It's weird because you look at Sanford has rolled Wofford five, six in a row, but then they can't beat Chattanooga ever. 
Chattanooga always rolls Sanford if you look at the last five, six matchups there. Sometimes the game is matchups, right? We talk about this occasionally. Some teams just match up differently, even though it doesn't quite make sense on why this team is better against that team than another team. And this is one of those things for me. It doesn't make sense, sense to me that Wofford would get rolled five in a row by Sanford, and then Sanford gets rolled by Chad every time, and then Wofford, Chad are, you know, just bangers every time. You know, you it just you start thinking about that, and it's a little odd. So I, I think Sanford in the style of play, Wofford hasn't figured it out yet. I'm going to go with history. They're still not going to figure it out. Now, for the actual, like, breakdown for it, I just don't think – Wofford has enough offensively to figure out what they're doing. And I think Sanford is one thing they've proven this year. And there's other years where Sanford, even Devlin Hodges, struggled to get 24, 27 points a game. But, I mean, if Wofford gets 30s or any, or I'm sorry, Sanford gets 30s, is there anything Mike Gallagher even points to to say that Wofford can get there? I have a hard time finding it. So, this year out of all other years, because I, I just – quickly flip through four or five years of Sanford scores, and they've had games where they've only scored, you know, 24, 21 points. They really haven't had much this year. They're, they're rolling in the points, not resulting in wins in every one of them. They're rolling in the points. So I'm going to go Sanford because I think the style of play does not fit Wofford. They seem to have a hard time dealing with that. So I'm going to go. They make it six in a row. Sanford's going to defeat Wofford. Wofford, 20 last week. 21 against CTSU. Obviously, they kept that game close. 23 against VMI. And they didn't against Kennesaw. <laughs> and the last couple of weeks, they've hit some big plays. They just cannot possess the ball. It is, it is pretty incredible. And that's why I think that the big one here, like, is Stanford and the fact that they are going to throw, you know, 70 times, still going to be able to outpossess Wofford. Like, it would be one of the more incredible under-the-radar stats of this FCS weekend. Tricky final game. For me, at least. Under the lights in Charleston, it's Furman at the Citadel. Seems many around the league think Furman hit their stride last week against Wofford. I'm not totally ready to drink the purple Kool-Aid yet. And I think back at home, the Bulldogs are going to give the Paladins a fight. Granted, it was not pretty here for the Citadel last week. We mentioned in segment one that the Bucks pretty much outplayed them in every facet. But I think this defensive Furman is going to be susceptible to the style the Citadel plays. The Paladins tied for the league lead in total defense, 334 yards allowed per game, but just fourth in the league in rush defense. Jace Wilson, his second start. Can he replicate the effort he had in start one? And I'm not even saying he did anything spectacular, but he didn't make mistakes. Managed the game well and made a few big plays. That's probably all they need from him, but with a full game's worth of tape to go off of, does that change how a team can prepare for the freshman? Will that affect how he's able to perform if the Citadel attacks his weaknesses? I'll say this. On either side, and this will favor what I believe will be the favorite, though it was interesting to see the Citadel is just a two-point underdog to VMI at home, so I guess I'm not sure what this line will really look like. But the best player on the field, possibly top four, but definitely a top five running back in the league, Devin Wynn, who had been almost a bystander really through four games this season, has a chance for another big day after his 204 yards last week defending SoCon Player of the Week offensively. The Citadel was bullied up front last week by the Bucks' offensive line. They need to bounce back, and if they want to stay in this game, and I think they will, they can't have the mistakes they did last week, turnover on downs in their own territory early, and then the interception down around the goal line when they were threatening in the second quarter. Last couple times they played the Citadel, Citadel's had their number, uh, 27 to 10 in 2019, and then towards the end of the year last year, Furman's kind of fell up, but 26-7. 
to, to end the year. So, I, and that's a little unnerving because Furman, the previous few years before that, when the Citadel was kind of in contention for Southern Conference championships, Furman had their number. So, kind of curious. I, I thought this would be the case um, coming into this, you know, some of the revenge games that people maybe have circled from the spring or whatever. And I would think this would be one of them because Citadel rolled Furman at the end of the year. You know, I think Furman came into the season with some very high hopes. And I think they've had to pivot quickly. And the question is, you know, week one, I agree. Yes, that is, you, you can't sit here and go, all right, book it. They are going to win a championship now. They've got their quarterback. It's ready to go. It was the first time we've seen Wilson, 14-23, 189 and a score. Fine line. Managed the offense, six carries, 26 yards and a score. You know, did a nice job of running the show. I'm curious how much of the offense and everything. I mean, they had a bye week to get them ready. People, I've already told you, two or three people that are invested in the program down there had told me that this guy was going to be the guy at some point. They just didn't think it would be this soon that he would get the ball. So now this is a typical backup quarterback thing, right? Everyone's got game tape on him. How does Wilson improve from game one to two? As a team in general, you say the biggest improvement is from game one to two. For a quarterback making a midseason backup role to starter role, game two is a little bit of a defining moment too because the Citadel and some other teams down the road will be able to look at what Jace Wilson has been able to do and how it's going to go. Now, Furman, the formula I always thought would be run the football with Devin Wynn. Again, they got some other guys that, that can run as well, and Devin Abrams. You also got Wayne Anderson Jr. Seems like he's been around forever, too, to get a spot carry here and there. You know, Ron Miller, receiver, Ron Luke. I mean, I think they got good pieces offensively. But they got a quarterback that can manage and get it going. I think Coach Sanders gets um, mad when we talk about game manager because it has a bad connotation. But he's like, if you don't manage the game to start with, you can't win games. Like, you manage the game, you don't lose it, and then at the end, can you go win it? That's a, a different conversation. And so my question mark in this game centers around Wilson because we saw, you know, Jalen Adams improve running the option. I think they simplified some things because there was not a, a lot of true triple option. And I give Citadel credit. They found plays that were gashing ETSU, and they didn't run it, you know, to death. But they picked spots and big spots and were able to run big plays. And a lot of that with the freeze counter with the quarterback. I thought a brilliant call on their reverse that they had on that fourth down play. They were creative on fourth down some more than they were on other downs. But to me, this comes down to how does Wilson play in game two? That is what I want to see. And if Wills comes out and they run the football and they dominate the Citadel, similar to how they were able to do so last week against Wofford, now I think, boom, okay, Furman, you know, back of the conversation. I'm not writing Furman off. I'm also not putting them in the league championship yet either. I'm just, let me see what they do this week. And, again, the league is still – taking shape, right? I, I wasn't sure what to think about Mercer until they got to a certain situation. I'm still holding on Furman one more week because I thought last week I didn't know they were going to make the change. 
Um, and I was expecting to see Hamp Sisson, and I thought I had enough information to judge Furman, but they went with Wilson. Wilson got the win. Now I don't have enough information to firmly say, yes, I think they're a contender. No, and someone would be handled. If Citadel beats Furman, they got a couple losses, and unless ETSU or Mercer lose, they're going to have a hard time getting back in it. Certainly, if ETSU or Mercer were to drop one and Furman were to win, it changed the conversation. But to me, if Wilson and Furman are dominant over the Citadel, that changes the conversation. So I, I'm holding one more week before I give you sort of my thoughts on Furman. Again, I, I think Coach Corals, Coach Hendricks are great offensive minds. Hendricks being a former lineman, you know he's going to want to maybe get back to the roots and run the ball a little more. Maybe Coach Corals wanted to. Uh, maybe Coach Corals won't throw around. I don't know the dynamics there. Um, but I do know usually when you have offensive linemen head coaches that generally they want to run the football, and it seems like to me they got back to that and running to the tune to 289 yards last week. I think I voted Furman fifth in the preseason poll. I, I had it higher than you did. I don't have any reason to think that that has changed. That being said, we mentioned it in segment one with the strength of schedule thing. Three and two with the schedule that they have. Now Tennessee Tech's no, they're terrible. Tennessee Tech's terrible. Uh, North Carolina A&T has not panned out this year. I believe they're uh, are they two and four. I'm going to have to double-check that. But uh, Wofford, you know, that that's not looking like a great win. You were shut down completely by Mercer at home. North Carolina State, obviously throw that out, ranked FBS team. Uh, but, again, on the totality of it, probably the best schedule in the league, along with Chattanooga, and throw in the Citadel as, you know, honorable mention, um, if you want to include league play. Uh, so 3-2 is good, especially considering that they had to go through a quarterback transition. A lot rides on quarterbacks all the time. Jace Wilson is no different here. But I look at the league right now with ETSU, Chattanooga, VMI, and Mercer in no particular order as the top four teams in it. And I don't think that Furman, in my mind, as I'm ranking the measures up to those four, at the moment. That could change, obviously. But hold me to that if you'd like, because I just don't think Furman's going to be in the championship conversation this year. I think I, I still want one more game. I, I want to see what Jace Wilson and the offense does this weekend. And it doesn't necessarily have to be world beat. I just need to see eyeballs on the quarterback one more game to get a feel for a better feel for the team. Now, he's still growing. It's game two, right? It's not going to define him if he's the four-year starter at Furman. He's clearly going to get better if he's a four-year starter. That or they are a terrible recruiting and he, whatever it is. But I think I need to see that game or this game just to sort of further. And then, you know, it depends on what happens. You're right. If you know if they were to lose this game, I think it's going to be hard to get back in it um, as far as championships go. If they win it and then each issue Mercer drop, now you're talking about that scenario where, that gives people a heartburn with everyone in it, and then there's still some good games on the schedule left for Furman. And for ETSU, you're talking about their two biggest games, I would say, because you go back-to-back SoCon road games at Chattanooga, and you follow up with Furman. Let's say ETSU loses the chat. Now you got to turn around and try to get geeked up for Furman, and Furman's coming off a big win. Citadel, that's a tough matchup, but in the same token, what if you win the game at chat? And you're a little geeked up, right? First time ever, seven and zero, and falling in love with yourself. And you're going to go right to Furman, whether they win or lose. And I, to me, this is a tough stretch for ETSU. If ETSU is going to be a championship team, this will be the stretch I think that it will tell you about ETSU for Furman. I think this is just another game and seeing 
the maturation process with Jace Wilson game two and what it means for Furman. Tyler Soul, North Carolina A&T have been. They're 3-2 right now, 2-0 and oh in their league. It is the Big South, and they beat North Alabama, who is winless by four last week. They're going to lose to Kennesaw State this week, and they're going to drop to 3-3. Three and three. They were number 24 in the country when they played Furman. They are no longer in the top 25 conversation. So I will stand by the they have not panned out. I will not stand by, obviously, the 2-4 and four because that's not fair. They're going to be a game better than that this week after they lose to Kennesaw State. But still, not as good of a win as it appeared when there was a number next to their name at the beginning of the year. And, and I think the, the hard part for, for A&T, they weren't allowed to play in the spring. Their whole league shut down and, and didn't get a place. They haven't played since 2019. And so I think A&T probably, everyone in those leagues, I think it's a little tough. Even Ivy League, if you watch some of those games where they weren't able to play, I think it's tough. I still think I Furman. I think he's got three of the last eight undefeated teams, Jay Sandoz. I, I, I mean, North Carolina A&T is still better than a lot of non-conference opponents that teams played uh, this season. So, I, again, I, I think it's a, a nice schedule that they did. Um, I mean, you get an OVC team, right? You get uh, MIAC. Big South now. Oh, Big South's right. Them in Hampton. You're right. Big South. Sorry. Um, I forgot about that. Yeah, they joined the Big South. Them in Hampton. So, you get a Big South, you get an OBC, you get an ACC. It's certainly it's whatever you're scheduling on one. Certainly. It, it will be a, a big game for sure. And for Citadel and, and Coach Brent Thompson, to me, this is a must win more for the Citadel than Furman. I know uh, Coach Hendricks is in a much better place than Coach Thompson of the ship continues to go south for the Citadel. Fair. And so I think this is a much more uh, about Citadel, a must win in that regard. If both teams want to keep the fight alive for a championship, certainly they need to win this game. Let's look at our show kind of breakdown when we come back. Basketball. Is that right? That's right. All right, right after this, Buccaneers Sports Network. Stand a second. For over 75 years, Bright Ridge has powered our community providing the energy to live, work, and play. And now we're looking ahead, investing in our community today, and building the infrastructure to power our community tomorrow. We're supporting zero-emission electric vehicles, harnessing the sun to provide clean, renewable community energy, and expanding into broadband services for our shared future. Bright Ridge, your community power, here for you. We will hear from the one, the only, Desmond Oliver on Monday. So we've talked women's hoops. We've talked men's hoops. Buck Madness. I know Mike Gallagher's fired up for Buck Madness coming up on Wednesday, next Wednesday for those of you in town. Buck Madness. I'm excited. There you go. Very excited. We are exactly one month to the day away from the Bucks taking on the University of Tennessee at Thompson Bowling Arena. I am way more excited about that than I am for Buck Madness. No, Buck Madness will be fun, too. That's coming two days after the opener against the Mountaineers of Appalachian State. It's a Friday, I believe, and then Sunday afternoon. It's like a noon start uh, because of the SEC network. Uh, that is ETSU and Tennessee. What could be better to open the year? Rivalry matchup, then an in-state clash against the current head coaches, former school, the most prominent program in the state, a team that the Bucs haven't gotten to play since scaring them away on December 22, 2016, with an ear upset at Freedom Hall. Before we get into Buck basketball, buzzer beater blowout, that to me, 
It's a very fun 48 hours open season. That is a spectacular 48 hours. It'll be fun to drive all that uh, and to get it going, but love that time of year. I know it's you're talking about Friday, boom, Saturday, another one, turn around, Sunday, bam, bam, bam. It's just lovely. It's what we love about uh, crossover season, and it's a way to splash games, I think, too, when you talk about getting to play uh, teams that are close to you, right, that, that people generally hate more in football than basketball. App State, they still have a hate of App State, and you still have those who uh, don't believe the ETSU blue and gold and orange together. There are plenty that do, but there are plenty that are just blue and gold and orange. So you're going to go from Boone, typing this into Google Maps, yep. to Cullowee, it's at Western Carolina for ETSU football. Yep. And then on to Knox. Yes. That, to me, is a pretty convenient travel schedule, though, because isn't one kind of on the way to the other? Sort of, well, not really. No, that's no the, the, the boon to Cullowee is a completely different That direction. is odd. Yeah. But Cullowee to Knoxville, so the game plan is drive to Boone and back for the 7 o'clock game. That was like a weird triangle kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. 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 You'll go yeah, Boone and back, uh, spend the night at home. Okay. Then go 3.30, kick Western. When that game's over, by the time we're off there, packed up, be 8, 9 o'clock at night. It's easier short ride because you're just on I-40. You take I-40 over to Knoxville and then spend that because it's a noon game. There's no sense, I don't think, driving home, getting home at 10, 11 o'clock at night to turn around at 8 in the morning and drive back to Knoxville. So we'll, we'll go app, spend the night, boom. But you're still talking about 7 starting, I don't know how many hours it is, but starting 7 p.m., Friday, 6.30. Four hours by the time that that game will be done against Tennessee if it goes to overtime. I'm going to lie back here in overtime. Okay. That'd be fun. Yeah, yeah, but 44 hours, you get three broadcasts and two basketball, one football. I think it's, I think it's honestly solid. pretty easy because it's a very short drive. Game. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it, this, uh, it's much better than going Villanova to whatever and then drive. I think it was Villanova. I got the private jet, you like that private jet back yeah, uh, for a home football game. And as soon as the game was over, immediately drove to Wilmington, spent the night, and did a 1 p.m game in Wilmington, which was a six-hour drive. Oh, if you're flying on private so, jets, I'm not going to give you too much time. Okay. No. All right. I'm big uh, time. As we move closer, we're going to start doing one of these per show starting one week from today because, admittedly, Buck Basketball Buzzer Beater Blowout is behind for a variety of reasons. As for today, it's the 2011-12 season. Bucks were coming off what we heard last week, a two-buzzer beater year in 2010-11. Michael Williams and Adam Salazzo, three weeks apart over Mississippi State and Mercer, respectively. A 24-win year, 17-4 and conference campaign. A near-CIT title after an ASUN tournament exit at the hands of North Florida. Jay Santos, before we listen to this clip, it all sounds good to me entering the 2011-12 year. Don't tell me about the year itself. Tell me about the expectations heading into the year because, for me, looking at this now, they'd be sky high. They were sky high. Uh, you just graduated a lot of 1,000-point scores um, off that team, but you still had some key pieces coming back. There were certain guys that were wanting to step up that year. But you look at the names that were still on the team. Tommy Hubbard's coming off the injury. He had a monster year the previous year. Honestly, if he would have been healthy, the previous team's year, I think, would have been one of the greatest teams that ever competed at ETSU. Uh, if he would have been healthy. He played a couple games, wasn't able to stay healthy. So you, you had Tommy Hubbard. Then Adam Salazzo was back, 1,000-point scorer. Isaiah Brown, Rashawn Rimbert ended up being one of the greatest three-point shooters in ETSU history. A young Lucas Pedaris, Jarvis Jones. A lot of key pieces in there that were going to be good, and 
that was expectations were. At I guess this I'll point, leave it there. the Bucks were off to a good start. Close loss to Virginia Tech, followed by wins over Appalachian State and Troy. The Bucks then found themselves on the road for six straight, which is pretty unheard of in this day and age. Six straight, starting with their first stop. Mayfield with the basketball. Boy, he missed that one too. Salazo a rebound. Seven seconds to go in a game. Five seconds. Adam Salazo with the basketball to Hubbard. Hubbard trying to get to the rim. A skip pass. Jarvis Jones, a game winner. Got it. Ball game. East Tennessee State's going to leave on another game winning shot by Jarvis Jones. Jones nails the three. It's the second time in his career he's ended the game. Sandoz from the open to the show. Sandoz and the sidekick. This buzzer beater good enough to live in infamy on a bumper that you've now heard 238 times. As this is episode number 238 of Sandoz and the sidekick. What you are most known for, what your name is plastered all over this show, this call made the open to it. It's one of my favorites. And the most amazing part of that call is what I like the best is when Tommy Hubbard's driving to the rim and it parted like the Red Sea. And he goes up what seems like a finger roll layup to tie the game. And for whatever reason, he chunks the ball in the corner. And so I start to lose um, in the call. I don't know if it spits that way, but I, I start to actually stand up because I'm like, what is he doing? And then Jones catches it cleanly, gets it off in time, and does what Jarvis Jones does. It's a, it's a game winner. If you can find the video, the reaction of Murray Bartow and Dave Mullins are quite spectacular. Um, Bartow with, with sort of a weird fist pump thing. I don't know what to call it. He's not the best at celebrating. <laughs> but it, it's a very odd, like, sort of fist pump go, and then he has to turn in a straight coach where he, he turns around and starts doing the, the blatant handshake, right, the, the very stiff, like, hey, good game, good game, good game. And uh, wasn't Desmond Oliver on that staff? Was positive he was on the Charlotte staff. I will, I will double double check, double double gauge that. But I think he was on a couple ends of ETSU losses that, um, at some point in time, the coaches show I may bring up and see what he remembers about that. Now that he's ETSU head coach. But Charlotte, 2010 to 2015. That's right. Sure. He was there. Pretty sure Desmond was on that staff. So um, that being said, the shot. I'm sure he was tired because he was on the Georgia staff the year before that, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So he was just tired of ETSU altogether. Two years before that. Two years, right? Okay, so shot goes down, but the biggest thing was Tommy Hubbard passes on the game tying layup, which ETSU I thought, boy, they're not gonna, you know, they're gonna miss another free throw, and then you hear it in the call where well, they did, they go down, but I couldn't believe he threw it out, and we've seen Jarvis Jones hit game tying, game winning shots. I mean, that's the Jarvis wasn't always a guy that you could go, well, he's gonna get you 15 or 20 a night, but if you had a big shot late in the game, he was not bashful. And he was very good at taking and hitting them. I think we may have one more down the road with him anyways. But he was great at that. But that game, I'll remember just for the simple reason, it was early in the season. And, again, I thought, boy, here we go. ETSU is going to rattle off. A, you know, this is going to be a great team. You know, they lost at Virginia Tech to start the year. That was a little bit of a tough one to get going. Then Appalachia State wasn't very good back then. So you get that win. You win Troy. Now all of a sudden it's like, all right, here we go. Win Charlotte. I'm thinking the wheels are starting to turn. Go ahead, championship. And it did not work out. So, Jarvis Jones, you mentioned, heard from him a couple of weeks ago in the 2009-10 season against Lipscomb, celebrated the year that it was. What do you believe this isn't the last time? You, you nailed it. Not the last time we're going to hear from him. He's got the most buzzer beaters in this countdown, so we're going to wrap his whole career 
when that next buzzer beater does play from Jarvis Jones. But yes, you touched on another very good point. The expectations we talked about, the Bucks being what they were at that point in the program where they had a couple of NCAA appearances in the last few years. As a matter of fact, they had made the national postseason three years in a row, a couple of NCAAs, and then the CIT that we talked about last week. This would be the first time since the 07-08 season in which they had to sit at home, not make the national postseason, knocked out in the second round of the Atlantic Sun Tournament. What in golden blue blazes happened, Jay Santos? Because you look off the top of this year, and you look at the years prior, and it seems like things are trending one direction, and they all fall apart. I think team chemistry really played into it because there was a lot of – they really went blown out a lot. There were just games that just – there was a lot of home-and-homes in those two. Home-and-home with Troy, home-and-home with App State. There was some interesting scheduling um, that went on. And, you know, the one thing you go from Charlotte – and then there was the same trip when we went Troy, Stetson, FGCU on on the same sort of swing and just brutal. And then you come back in a day or so later, you go to Tennessee Tech, which is another 3M. So I think – I don't know why the schedule. Usually, if you look at some of the other schedules, Coach Marto was – and some was league-scheduled games, right? Right, because that was back when um, the league had more teams, and so they were trying to get more games in before January, for, and you'd play one series before you get to the new year, and it was always odd timing. But that kind of threw a monkey wrench in some of the scheduling. But I think playing all those games in the middle, all road, all losses – Troy, Stetson, FGCU, Tennessee Tech, just blah. You just get the losses. Then I thought, felt like turned the corner. Beat up State Milligan. Here's a game I'm going to point to. At Tennessee, lost 66-63. I've got the box score pulled up, but I can probably say this without it. ETSU was up like four or six points. And I can remember the play. There was a steal. There was a dunk by Tennessee. ETSU then gets the ball. Salazzo turns it over. Trey Golden, and I, this is the play I won't forget. Trey Golden with like five minutes to go in the game, give or take. He's going out of – he goes to pass the ball. The ball gets out of his hand. It's going out of bounds. He leaps in the air, and I kid you not, he swats it like a volleyball back in play, and it <laughs> darts right in the goal. And I remember breaking several pencils because that's, that, that's my thing. Instead of cursing on air, I break pencils and get the negative energy out. And – I broke a couple pencils, and we went to maybe media timeout. It was close after that, and I turned to several people behind me who were not Tennessee fans, and I was like, that's the game. And they're like, what are you talking about? You guys are playing really good. I'm like, when that shot goes in, it changed the whole complexion of the game. I don't know how – I've got the – I've not looked yet. I've got the very, box. very close. It was like five and change. And the Bucks at that point before – because it says – obviously it says, good layup, Trey Golden. I've imagined it that's was, what you're talking about. It yes. was 59-51 ETSU. Yes. He goes down. Well, it was a dunk, I think, right before that, and I could be wrong about that. It made it, I guess, 59-53. Is that right? I can't see that. Right, 59-53. Okay, so, and then, it was, and then I remember Salazzo. Turned it over. Yes, yeah. and, and it was a bad. It was one of those where, like, he was turned back looking at the coach trying to get a play, and somebody picked his pocket, and he did a good job not to give up a layup. And then ETSU plays pretty tight defense, and Trey Golden loses the ball going up to make a pass, and then he jumps out of bounds, and volleyball spikes it from some ridiculous angle, and it goes in, and I remember that in my mind I've seen certain things happen, and you're like, that's not good, you're not winning. And that was right there. I was like, man, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but I do not – it's not not, going to be our day. You can't have that happen. 
against those type teams in those situations. So then we go if, then we go to Clemson. We never win at Clemson. I don't care how bad Clemson is. ETSU refuses to beat Clemson. Then you get in the league, and this is how it was sort of in the A-Sun. You, you get on the spurt of wins because the A-Sun had some years where it was pretty good. This particular time in the A-Sun wasn't as good as other years. But ETSU rattled off some wins, and then, you know, when they lost the five, six straight wins, and then they lost two in a row, Belmont Lipscomb. That was bad. Then they had the weird mid-year James Madison non-conference game. I think that was the old bracket busters. Remember when that was a thing? So had the bracket buster game, won that one, won at Kennesaw because they were terrible, lost at Mercer, you beat North Florida, then all of a sudden you lose Jacksonville at Belmont, and then you get kind of on a run. And this is where I got excited. A-Sun tournament, we're down to Macon. We've been playing pretty good down there. You win at Lipscomb February 20th. You beat Stetson. You beat FGCU. You take on Robert Harper is now in North Florida. The previous year in North Florida knocked out ETSU, but now the curse of Harper is there. ETSU knocks out North Florida. They play Belmont. You're feeling pretty good in the semis, and then you lose 69-61, and the season's over. And it, it was a, a season that I think early got off to a rough start because of some travel, and I realized people are like, oh, NBA guys, and, oh, these teams play four and five, and some of these power five. Yeah, but they're not in the bus driving to Troy, driving to Stetson, driving to FGCU. Go ahead and do that on your little Google mappy thingy and tell me how long that is because it's long. And we flew back from Florida Gulf Coast. But busing to Troy and then Stetson and then Florida Gulf Coast is quite the long trek. And then you lose, you know, that game. Then you immediately go to Tennessee Tech, which is a three-and-a-half-hour drive on top of when you just got back from that trip. So I think traveling, scheduling hurt. I think certainly the Tennessee game swung things because if they could have held on to that, I think what that does for any team emotionally to get that win and get going, I think that would have really got the season going. I mean, again, it wasn't a horrific year. I mean, ETSU 17-14, 11-9 league play. It's just considering what they had gone to with the last couple of um, – seasons where they've gone, you know, two straight title games, championship, then they have the run in the CIT, whether you like that or not. There's a lot of energy, and then you go 74. So it wasn't an awful year for ETSU. I just think for the previous three years, it was a little bit of a disappointment considering what the previous years were. Firstly, from Johnson City to Troy is like, what, seven, eight hours, and then you got to do almost a diagonal down to East Florida to get to Stetson, which is like five or six more. And then from Stetson to Florida Gulf Coast, it's like two and a half. In total, I don't know if I did that, all that math exactly right, but 17 hours and 41 minutes. And you, and you, you played every other day. And you said you flew back, which is back. great, but, yeah, the, the map, the zigs and zags and the depth you have to go into Florida is quite amazing. Also quite amazing that you remembered 10 years later, one sequence like that. Trey Golden. That Trey Golden had the volleyball in on the layup, and Tennessee scored 15 of the last 19 after the Bucks were up by eight. Because that does seem like something that would stick with you. Obviously, Tennessee is a team you always want to beat. I think for you and me both, and probably more so you than me because you've been here a lot longer than I have and are from the area, but Tennessee is a team you just grow to kind of despise over all the years because of the absurd fandom, an obnoxious fandom, and – the constant just absurdity around the programs, regardless of how good or bad they are. That is one that seems like it would stick with me. But the fact that you remember within 30 seconds and remember can see the play, didn't have to look at the box score, and then I go to the box score, look it up, and almost every detail is right on. That is why 
you and ETSU are synonymous. Linked in the hip and always will be. That was impressive. And then a couple of years later, they play Trey Golden again at Georgia Tech, and I have flashbacks. Although that game was not in doubt, but uh, I had to look it up if he, was at, if he was at Georgia Tech before or after that. But he was at Georgia Tech after that. But that game, uh, there's a couple games. The, like I said, the drive with Hubbard will always stay in my mind because he passed the game tying shot for a, a either win or lose three, which obviously Tissue won, and Jarvis Jones is forever one of my heroes. And then the Trey Golden volleyball spike in play that just Bruce Pearl. Forbes and all those guys beat us on terrible. All right, what do we got? Oh, no, wait a Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch and hit. Mark it down now. Plus 10 ERA. Hit a buck 20 max. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's in five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered for the U.S. national team is JaVale McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. A newly fit Jay Sandoz will never scuff another drive in Johnson City Country Club. Senior Tour, here we come. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. A simple wrong would have done just fine. shape. It's just a different shape than you want me to be. <laughs> yes, the shape is a circle. Is that the only <laughs> uh, bold prediction, I'm 1 in 15. Woo! You're 7 and 9. Boom. Continue to dominate. Diggity. Boom diggity. Uh, please get some wrong. Would you? Take <laughs> some mercy on <laughs> You me. still got to get just, some right at some point. That's a good point. Okay, one's I'm going to try and get right. I'm going all Chattanooga ETSU because that is what this matchup is. Sounds good to me. I'll do the same. All mocks and bucks on Chattanooga week. Here on Santos the Sidekick. These are the two best teams in the league in terms of turnover margin. Chattanooga has not lost a fumble all year. They will lose a fumble and be minus in the turnover margin Saturday after entering the week at a plus six. I will up you and say Elijah Huzzy has an interception. You are Calling a specific Calling. person. Wow. Elijah, yeah, I feel good about tight ends as a group. I'm, I'm now <laughs> feeling very cocky. I'm going straight person. This Elijah is, Huzzy, INT. This is when I start my comeback, when you start to get a little bit too confident in your bold predictions. Which I'm usually happens when I'm up this. one, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm feeling good about this. ETSU is averaging 30 more yards through the air than Chattanooga is averaging on the ground. They will get 75 or more yards through the air than Chat has on the ground. I will stick a little bit with that. Um, I gave you the 12 through 14 SOCON games, 200 yards. Chattanooga will not get to 125 on the ground. Wow. Well, 75 yards less. That's why I went with that one because it kind of fit what I was going to say, but not really. But go ahead. Two of the best kickers in the league, Tyler Keltner and Aaron Sears, have 19 combined field goals made. They played in 11 combined games, so averaging just under two field goals per game. They will combine for five or more on Saturday. If you weren't quite clear what I thought, and I told you this segment one, I would tell you what kind of game it was going to be in bold predictions. I think this is going to be, as you can tell by the turnover call, as you can tell 
by ETSU maybe having to throw it a bit more than they're running it. I do think it is going to be a, and of course the field goal prediction, a lower scoring game, but there is going to be ball movement up and down the field. I think Chattanooga is going to get out early a little bit. ETSU is going to be, as they are, very resilient. I'm thinking it might be like a two-score game early, 10-0, 14-0 Chattanooga, as it was for ETSU here a couple of years ago in 2018 when it ended up being 17-14 after the Bucks were up 17-0. I think it's going to be a tight game after things work themselves out. Bucks come from behind, do some throwing, succeed throwing. I'm not sure the Bucks are going to be able to run it as well as Chattanooga will be able to run it. I think both defenses are going to kind of shut down the other team's run game, and ETSU will resort to throwing it, which they can do. And then they're going to stall out in the red zone. Both teams will. It's going to be like a 20 to 17 game. So I, this is where I'm, 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 you'll love what I'm going to do here. I think it's going to be low, right? Yep. Right. I said that all along. It's going to be low. Yep. It's going to be low. It's going to be a defensive game. Uh, and I'm going to hedge my bet here on bold predictions. ETSU in three games, 17, 18, 19 versus Chattanooga, only 33 points. They will have more than 33 points. <laughs> You know, I'm on record the whole half hour of the first second. This will, this will be a gut punch 17-16 game or 21-20 or something like that. I come out both prediction heads my best. Cowboy up, go play ball.